Today I'm going to be talking about an area that has often made the traditional church a little uncomfortable. So just a disclaimer, you need to be prepared for maybe slightly jarring things or maybe not, but either ways, it's God's word, so we'll reconcile. Um, and we shall be taking a deep dive today, or at least some kind of a dive, as to what scripture has to say about, sorry, can you hear guys hear me now a little better? Okay about uh, sexual well-being, sexual well-being. I'll say it once more so that you get accustomed to it. Sexual well-being. Okay, and my hope is that after today, few of you will be convicted enough to have conversations with leaders at New City. Uh, few of you will be having conversations with some trusted members of this community as we progress. So, a few qualifications. I cannot cover the entire length and breadth of a topic like this in, in one sermon. Um, but the hope is that you guys as a community, as individuals, figure out some practices, some rhythms, and some routines that will really help you become the men and women that God has intended you to be with regards to sexual purity. Um, so uh, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians six twelve. If you have your Bibles, follow along. So Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I'm just going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your scripture and the grace of the cross, Lord. As we dive into this, we pray for godly convictions and for a new spurring in this area of life that you have gifted to us, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, so friends, this is my main point today, which is we all need to embrace God's beautiful design for sex in order to grow in our duty towards stewarding it and thriving in it as a community, right? So all of us are called to embrace God's beautiful design for sex. And uh, as we embrace the beauty of it, we are also to grow in our duty towards it. So uh, two points I'm going to be claiming to you. Number one, sex is good. Hence, boundaries are good. And number two, it takes a community like you guys to build culture 
and your individual sin impacts the entire community. Okay, so why a conversation on sexuality today? Um, so Paul, who authored this letter, was addressing Corinthians that we've been reading from today. And so Corinth was Rome's third largest city. Uh, it had a thriving community of the wealthy, the poor. They had businessmen, they had artisans, they had musicians. And this was coined around 44 AD, around 44 years after Christ died. And so people who had now become Christians were coming from various cultural backgrounds. And now they were most likely first-gen Christians, like a lot of us. And so what was happening is a lot of them were um, bringing their old cultural baggages that they had been practicing into the gospel. So there was this mishmash. Uh, they had heard the gospel of Jesus. They had heard the conviction. But now they were bringing in these weird sort of practices that Paul was addressing in chapter 6. Now, um, before we move on talking about uh, our sexual well-being, I want to urge you all sitting today to really think about the context from where each of you comes from. What is the context that you guys come from with regards to sexual well-being? You know, India is, um, is a huge country, and there's a whole range of sensibilities when you talk about sex, right? So we are credited as a country uh, to author the book of the Kama Sutra, right? As well as on the other side, there are some extremely abhorrent practices that we as a culture have been uh, sort of engaging with. I don't have time to get into it, but... And so, all of us have this sort of mixed messaging, to say the very least, in the families that we've grown up, in the cultures that we have grown up. So how was sex um, addressed in your particular issues, uh, in, your, in your context, pardon me? Um, I don't know about you, but for me, my household, they were very, very strict. They just expected me to figure out how sex functions. They were praying deeply for my biology class to make sure that they impart to me all the knowledge about this subject, and there was no conversation further, right? Um, so that was my background. Uh, in a lot of your, I'm guessing, if you're from a deeply traditional Indian family, sex was only talked about when you had to procreate, right? So when your family wanted a male heir child, was when your in-laws would say, Aray bhai, kya ho hai? Come on. Like, I need a ladka. Anybody privy to that kind of behavior? And so that's the only time they talked about um, sex to get a male heir to pass on their lineage. And when I was growing up in the 80s, um, in Bollywood films, when they would show, when a couple is about to get intimate, they would show something like this. They... Oh, there we go. And so this was significant that a couple is now going to get intimate. So it was talked in metaphors and analogies, and they never really addressed it head on, right? Now, the other side, Mumbai as a city has, at least at one point, Asia's largest red light district, Kamatipura, right? Uh, and although pornography in India is technically illegal, India ranks as one of the highest consumers of porn. P pornography as of today is a 97 billion dollar industry. 97. And that's the white facts. We don't know how much it's actually worth. 
So the point is, as far as sexual well-being goes, all of us come with mixed messaging. All of us have uh, some healthy notions, some unhealthy notions. And if anything, I urge you to talk about this a lot more, of course, in safe circles with people that you trust and with some of your leaders here at New City. So we'll jump in. Number one, sex is good. This is my plea. Hence, boundaries are good. Uh, so what does the Bible have to say about sex? I'm going to try and address this quickly. So holistically speaking, the Bible addresses the beauty of sex, the design of sex, the context of sex, and the purpose of sex. In Genesis 1, with regards to um, the, sorry, actually in Song, Songs of Solomon, a book that is rarely preached about in, in church circles, uh, the Bible does not shy away from the beauty of sex. If any of you were to open the chapters right now, read the message version, you would be blushing a little bit, at least, is my um, sort of statement. And so the Bible does not shy away from the beauty of it. It's not coy at all. It's very, very uh, sort of intentional. So the Bible addresses the beauty of sex. Then the Bible talks about the design of sex. In fact, uh, the Bible is, if I were to bring a... A metaphor. It's like how all of us partake of the communion week after week at New City. You, you take the bread and the juice and you symbolize what Jesus did on the cross. And sex was actually meant to be a sort of a covenantal renewal of sort that a husband and wife practice within the confines of their marriage. And so the design was meant to be a, a renewal, a covenantal renewal of sorts within the confines of marriage and intimacy. And yes, as far as the purpose goes, we've all heard in Genesis 1, go forth and multiply. So it is, sex was meant to procreate, as it says, and, but it's so much more, right, friends? It's so much more. Sex is about oneness, the way a couple is meant to know each other within the bounds of marriage, the way a couple is meant to fully know each other, serve each other, love each other, be vulnerable with each other, naked in, each, in front of each other, physically and metaphorically, in complete intimacy. Now, I've addressed the context of it, but is, I need to say this. Sex was always meant to be within the confines of marriage, within the sacred union of marriage. Is by far one of the most intimate acts uh, human beings can engage with. So it is a big deal, and the Bible does not shy away from that. And so for sexual intimacy to be uh, experienced in its fullness, it has to be within the confines of a legal union, of an economic union, a personal union, an emotional union, and ultimately a spiritual union, which is what marriage is. Can you nod your heads if you agree with me? If you don't, that's fine too. We are happy to have, Anand is happy to have a chat with you uh, uh, later. I won't be. Um, so if you think about your marriage vows, what does it say? For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, till that do us part. So it's talking about this union in every aspect of life. And so sexual intimacy was meant to be in the confines of that. And just with anything precious or beautiful in your life, you are meant to have boundaries. Can we agree on that? With anything sacred, with anything nice that God has given to us, there need to be boundaries, and sex is no different. 
And I want to address this, sadly, for a lot of us, myself included, in this room, there has been a lot of baggage. There has been a lot of guilt. There has been a lot of shame. A lot of fear of being reprimanded. And for, for all of us today, my humble plea is that if we fundamentally don't see the beauty of sex, if you fundamentally don't see the beauty of sex as to how God designed it and meant it to be, then all the duties that we're going to be talking about are pointless. They'll be cosmetic at best. Duty will only go so far. And so in today's scripture, Paul is addressing this caution to us. He's, it seemed like in Corinthians 6, married men were going to temple prostitutes, which was a very common practice at that time. And so Paul was saying that, hey, you need to back up a little and you can't be doing whatever you feel like. So he begins by saying, uh, hey, you guys are saying that I have the right to do anything. And the Christians of, of that time in Corinth were basically saying, hey, you know what? Jesus gives us the freedom from this mosaic law that we have been so tied down to. So hallelujah. Now anything goes. It's all grace. There's nothing that condemns us. And so the fundamental error that the church in Corinth was guilty of was that they were viewing their physical bodies um, inconsequential in God's moral economy. They felt the two were separate. They felt, hey, whatever we do, so food or sex, just as an appetite, it's fine. God's going to destroy them both. So why bother? And Paul's saying, hey, that's not right. God's going to destroy them both. And they go on to say, hey, the body needs food. Body needs sex. So let's just feed it. And then he, Paul throws on the caution. He says, hey, you may have the right to legally eat, drink, and do whatever you want. But as a culture, New City, have you become slaves to any of these things in your personal lives? Are any of these elements really become idols in your lives? is what Paul is asking us. And so with regards to sex, he's saying sex is good, it's beautiful, but we need boundaries. And with regards to boundaries, he says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, flee. So Paul, in this verse, he's clearly distinguishing that there are uh, differences between sexual sins and, and other sins. And, and the point he's making is that with sexual sin, there's a lot more at stake than your other sins. We won't have time to get into that. But he's saying it's, it's not only is it internal in your body, but it often involves the, the sort of desecration of another individual. And the word that Paul is using is flee. He's not saying, hey, let's have a prayer group. Let's meditate. Let's think about this. Let's talk to a best friend. Let's see what there are other opinions around. He says, flee. Flee from it. Flee from sexual immorality. A lot of you may know this, but what's the word, the Greek word for sexual immorality? Pornia. Pornia. Where we get the word? Pornography from. And so Paul's saying, hey, all of us, if you're in the gospel, you need to flee from this and it's a lot more than fornication that, porn, that pornia stands for. It's a lot more than sexual intimacy outside the bounds of marriage. And so Paul is saying, flee. 
You know, friends, one of the greatest weapons the enemy has used time and time again over the course of history, biblically or not, is the one of sexual brokenness. If you look at the Bible, there are enough instances. Abraham sleeping with Sarah, Lot and his daughters, Sodom and Gomorrah, David and Bathsheba. How many concubines did Solomon have? 700 And how many wives? How do you think that panned out for King Solomon? And sadly, in 2023 in Mumbai, the culture doesn't seem to have learned. But I would strongly say a lot of us in the church don't seem to get the gravity of sexual sin. And so for our time today, I'm just going to be addressing one sin that I think is really wreaking havoc within the confines of uh, church. And, and, and this is what Paul is calling us to really, really free, flee from and free from as well. Right? So, uh, pornography. The elephant in the room. I'm going to address it. Uh, they say, these are most clinical psychologists that, that use this term. They say 99% of men, and now I wouldn't say women, struggle are struggling with pornography. 99% of the men. Now, some women are struggling with pornography. And the, the rest of the 1% are lying. <laughs> now, I, I'm saying that with a pinch of salt. And, and friends, as I say this, I don't want you to hear any of this in, with any sort of condemnation or guilt or shame. That's not the point of us, but the point is we need to be talking about this more so that we can address it from the very root. And the invitation today is to firstly acknowledge where the problem lies. See, friends, pornography is not the main problem. Behind pornography is something else that each of us is sort of gunning for and struggling for. Pornography is the symptom at best, but the caution, as Paul says, is to flee from it. And if you don't see the beauty of how God designed it, then your fleeing, I would reckon, is only going to be temporary at best. Uh, If you're feeling ashamed, let me uh, sort of break the tension a bit. I struggled with pornography for a big part of my life. I'm 42 right now, but from the time I was 15 till I met my wife, uh, about till 26 I was struggling with it on almost a daily basis. It wasn't consumption. And, and, and I was a, a Christian at that point, but it was not talked about. I wish somebody had talked to me about it. And just because I didn't smoke or drink, I felt that can be secret. I can struggle with it. Nobody needs to know. Uh, but nobody told me any better. And so I say this why? Because I think there may be a some, there may, may being the keyword, some of you guys struggling with and women as well struggling with this in your very community. Now, for me personally, since 2006, I have this software called Covenant Eyes installed on all of my devices. I make sure that whether it's my phone or... And even though I haven't struggled with it for a while, but I know the depravity of my own heart. And as a leader of a church, I'm not going to risk my purity just based on some uh, narcissistic understanding of my threshold. So I have this software on all my machines. 
there's covenant eyes, there's ever accountable, there are a whole bunch of other things. But friends, with sexual sin right now, you're just one click away. It's just one bad day. You and your laptop spend the most amount of time. You and your devices spend the most amount of time, more than any other human being. And you need to be aware. And we'll talk about how porn damages us uh, a little further on. And so porn, friends, is inherently selfish. It does not align with the covenantal uh, values that marriage stands for. And Anand is more happy, more than happy to have this chat with all of you after the sermon's done. But I implore you to really talk to him uh, with this. And I'll be putting some questions up. So the first sin that Paul is urging us to flee from in 2023 is pornography. Uh, Secondly, that the sins of fornication, but I think this sort of covers it. And thirdly, the sin of idolizing sexual intimacy and idolizing marriage. I'll quickly say this. So many of us, maybe if you're single, you have just inundated yourself with this thought that marriage is going to fulfill you as a person. Or having sexual intimacy with that one perfect person is going to fulfill you. And friends, I want to say that there might be some truth to it, but the enemy wants you to be sort of chained to that sort of mentality and for you to think that you cannot be happy until and unless you get married or until and unless you have sexual intimacy with your wife or husband. And all of us, myself included, when I was, I'm not going to say that I was any different. When am I going to get married? When am I going to get married? When am I going to get married? And the lie is that you won't be fulfilled until and unless. And Paul is saying, flee from those kind of thoughts. If you're single, your fulfillment will not come just because you get married. Ask a married person. I can tell you. Tracking so far? We're good? Okay. So, our first point. Sex is good, hence boundaries are good. Secondly, It takes a community to build culture that we are talking about. And your personal sin, your personal sin impacts the whole community. I have noticed this at my church uh, and so many other churches that I've been a part of where one of the greatest weapons, the enemy or the brokenness of us, one of the greatest ways the enemy uses Uh, our sexual sin to impact the community is um, the enemy wires us to have as much of intimacy and sexual experiences outside of marriage and as less of it inside. So the enemy knows that, hey, if all of us, myself included, are having these sort of experiences outside of the confines of marriage, that is good for the enemy. But if married couples are engaging in wholesome physical intimacy, that is bad for the kingdom. And so married people, I want you to introspect for a second. How is your intimacy? And you know why the enemy wants to do that? Because he understands that uh, if a couple are engaging in healthy, thriving, sacrificial, life-giving, fun, adventurous, romantic, passionate intimacy, 
those kind of couples only become stronger and stronger and stronger the more they are married. I'm very happy to contest that if you feel otherwise. You know why? Because, okay, just by show of hands, I'm not going to ask you uh, awkward questions. By show of hands, how many of you are married? Okay, that's a good, healthy part. How many of you will say that marriage has been a bed of roses? Please raise your hands. Please. Oh, wow. How long have you been married? One and a half. That's why he's raising his hand. One and a half years. Uh, right? So for those of you who have been married for more than one and a half years, <laughs> you know the kind of stressors marriage has. There are financial stressors. There are relationship stressors. All of you, I'm guessing, are in well-paying jobs in Mumbai. That has its own stress in a city like Mumbai. There are stresses of the health. There are stresses of your extended family. Right? And the only way that a couple can maintain intimacy with all of these pressures in their marriage is if Jesus is at the center, if the gospel is at the center of their marriage. This means that during difficult times, a couple recognizes that, hey, uh, their identity is not dependent upon whether they solve this crisis or not. Their identity doesn't come from whether they can get over this financial burden or uh, this, this uh, physical burden. And they're not defined by the difficulty of the season. And such a married couple will continually, continually invite gospel. They'll continually be active in faith and repentance. Um, and continually, the husband will sacrificially love his wife, and continually, the wife will sacrificially love her husband. And couples who can sustain their love within the sacred confines of their marital bed, despite these challenges, are the ones experiencing steady growth in faith and a deepening of love for each other. Would you agree with me? And even if you're finding it hard to believe, that's the beauty of it. You know, what happens when a couple in the marriage confines in their houses are being healthily intimate? What happens? What kind of an environment do you think is created in the household? When mom and dad, husband and wife are loving. Do you think children feel safe around such people? Do you think there is joy? Do you think there is this sort of bedrock where they see mom and dad living a life where they're not defined by their circumstances, but they're still loving each other. They're still able to laugh over, in one sense, over the situations that they're encountering. What do you think those kind of couples will do to a community? It makes them stronger. It brings in safety. And the enemy is bent upon making sure that married couples do not engage with healthy physical intimacy. And all of us who are outside of marriage bounds, as much as possible, go for it, have a field trip just like the people in Corinth. And Paul goes on to say, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know? And so Paul is sort of 
coming hard and he's saying that, hey, doctrinally you know, but functionally you are not living that kind of life. You're not living like your bodies uh, belong to Christ. And use this phrase, members of Christ, meaning every time they were sinning, they were defiling Jesus. And he uses this temple prostitute example. And he's saying, hey, fundamentally you either belong to Jesus or you belong to the world. Both cannot be Lord of our lives. One will dethrone the other. And so many of us, myself included, have struggled with this idea that, hey, as long as my sin is secret and private, it will not really impact anything else in my life. And to which I want to quickly reiterate, uh, he says in Ephesians 1.22, he says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. And so friends, if New City, if you all are meant to be the body of Christ, are you telling me that your sins, your individual sins aren't impacting each other? A simple example, how many of you believe that work is good? Work is good, right? But with work... God has placed some boundaries. He says, on the seventh day you shall rest. What happens when you don't rest? Just think about, just process this with me. You don't rest one Sunday, whatever your Sabbath is. What happens? Suddenly you start developing uh, dark circles around your eyes. You're consuming a whole bunch of coffee. You're becoming edgy. Before you know it, you're lacking patience. Before you know it, you're being snappy. Before you know it, your work is becoming your idol. And what is... What is at stake? Your relationships become at stake. And so simple, something as simple as rest, if you don't give it its due, will start wreaking havoc in the lives of this community. When you come on Sunday mornings, you'll be annoyed, you'll be upset, you are devoid of sleep, and you're an unpleasant to be around. How much more with sexual sin? You think those kind of boundaries will not impact you as a community? When you do not put boundaries in your life. We, Anand and everybody else, lose the privilege of having you be the man or woman that you were meant to be in this community and serve and be uh, truth and light. And so with pornography, friends, I want to just challenge you. If that's been a struggle you need to hear, or any kind of lust in your heart. I don't want to just say pornography. Maybe for some of us, it's that extra gaze where our eyes just linger for a little bit longer. Maybe for some of you, it is consuming copious amounts of uh, Netflix, which is not really healthy for you. You know, they say that uh, the shows on Netflix that are catered to uh, female erotica are some of the highest consumed content on Netflix. So this is not just a man or a, or a male-dominated thing. And you need to introspect and see where you need to make some of those changes in your life. I love the whole notion in this article uh, I read where he says, what happens once you consume content like that outside of the bounds of marriage? He says, the moment you're done, you want to just go get your lunch, hang out, do whatever else that is that you were doing. And so it is the most consumeristic, most violent and selfish act possible. 
And for some of you, you think that marriage will solve the issue. Let me tell you very clearly, it will not. One more controversial statement. It's very possible for people in their marriages to be lusting after each other and not using sex the way it was meant to be. It's very possible. A lot of couples are guilty of doing that. Hopefully, uh, you are being convicted about some of this. You know, they, there's a popular saying that says, it takes a village to raise a child. But for us, it actually takes a community to build culture. And if new city has to become the life-giving community that it is meant to, you need to have the safe space of processing your individual sin. So the plea is, hey, reach out to Aji, reach out to Anand, if this is something that you need to process. And they will walk you through it. So uh, sex is good, boundaries are good, and it takes a community to build culture. And your sin, individual sin, impact, impacts us as a culture. And if you're anything like me, even when I was writing this, it was really overwhelming because uh, maybe there are feelings of guilt or shame. Maybe some of you have checked out because it, it brings up a lot of hurt and baggage from the past. But thankfully, this is where the gospel of Jesus comes in. Amen? Right? Um, you know, Jesus is the only one who can bear the weight of all our baggage, all the baggages that you and I have individually with regards to sexual brokenness. He can bear the weight of it. At the same time, Jesus, who can give you the power to be released into the men and women that you were meant to be. See, friends, uh, guilt and shame, if you're feeling guilty and ashamed right now, they can only pave the way for surface-level change at best. We need something more. We need someone who can really reorder the desires of our heart. Somebody who can really change us from the inside out. Because you can go back home and put those softwares on your machines, but your heart wouldn't have changed. And that's where Jesus comes in, right? So when Paul is saying, you flee from the cross, sorry. <laughs> when Paul is saying, you flee from sexual sin, from sexual immorality, the invitation is that you flee to the cross. The only place where you can make that kind of an exchange. You know, uh, there's this really interesting uh, story of Jesus talking about sexual sin in the Gospel of John in chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You guys know that? So there's this exchange. She comes to this well at 12 noon and uh, she says, Jesus asks her for water. She says, I don't have. And then he says, if you only knew who was talking to you, uh, you would ask him for life-giving waters. And she says, there's a whole exchange that transpires. And he says, oh yeah, lovely. Uh, And it it gets sort of cryptic. Um, And then he makes this claim that I have this water that leads to eternal life. Uh, And then she says, oh, that's great. Can I have this water? To which Jesus makes the most odd request to her. What does he say? He says, go call your husband and come back. Awkward, eh? There's this woman who's asking for life-giving waters and Jesus is saying, go call your husband and come back. To which she says, hey, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. The guy you're with right now 
is not your husband and you've had five before. Why is Jesus referencing, referencing her possible sexual baggage, her possible relationship baggage in the conversation of life-giving waters? Why is he doing that? And the point is, friends, Jesus wanted to go right for the jugular. Where she was hurting is where Jesus wanted her to know that it is only in Jesus that you can find that kind of fulfillment that you're looking for. It's not in your last five husbands. It's not in the man that you're with. For all of us sitting here today, it's not in your devices. It's not in your potential marriage partner. It's not in your marriage right now that you'll find the intimacy and the fulfillment that you're craving for right now, but it's only in Jesus and Jesus alone. And to that, he was saying, hey, I need to address that first. All of us sitting here need to make sure that we are addressing that brokenness in our hearts and lives right now. And that is Jesus' heart today, to free you, to rid you from the guilt and shame that sexual sin has brought in. And Jesus is saying, hey, only I can give you that kind of intimacy. Whether you're single friends, whether you're married, the kind of intimacy that you're looking for, the kind of connection, the kind of being known is only found in Christ. Flee from sin, but flee into the arms of Jesus. Uh, In closing, this may have been a lot for some of us, but it's been an honor for me to uh, broach this. I know that this will only bring in more life to you guys as a community, as individuals. Christ is here to set us free. And so will this road to recovery for some of us look easy? No. For me, it took me, as I said, 11 years almost to conquer it. But it's worth every penny. And finally, the promise that all these longings that all of you and all of myself are struggling with, the promise that one day it will be restored, we will be made fully perfect, every quench in our hearts and our lives will be perfectly restored and we will become perfect beings. And so just for that, I think the struggle to flee from sexual sin is worth it. And maybe all the sacrifice and pain that you're being called to will be worth it. I'm just going to leave this question for you, uh, for you guys to reflect upon, which is what is a concrete action you plan to take in order to uphold your journey towards sexual purity? And friends, please talk to somebody that you trust, Ananji, all your other leaders. Uh, will be more than happy to walk you through it. Yeah, let me just pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again for the truth of your word, Lord, and for the grace of the cross, Lord, that none of us here who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior are left by the wayside, God, that you want to orchestrate change not only in our actions, but in our hearts, Lord. So I pray that blessing over this community, Lord. That as they endeavor, as they, as they flee from this sin, that you would really replace and reorder the desires of their heart with regard to sexual purity, Lord. And Father, I know that if you weren't there 
this would be not possible, Lord. So I pray for the same kind of hope that would captivate our hearts as we take on this journey, Lord. I make this prayer in your most precious name. Amen.